There's a popular image of the investigative journalist as a lone wolf, bravely exposing wrongdoing and holding power to account. Sometimes that's exactly how it is. And bravery is certainly a qualification for the job, especially in places where media freedom is under assault. But we've seen a growing trend in recent years towards collaboration among investigative journalists. And often that collaboration takes place across borders. In this special episode to mark World Press Freedom Day, we explore how transnational cooperation helps make investigative journalists more resilient. Resilient in the face of repression. I will not let my people go back knowing that they can be sentenced right after crossing the border. Resilient in a time of war. I turned on my smartphone and saw that Putin announced this special operation on Ukraine. Resilient in the face of political pressure. They tried to portray us like we were some kind of a fraud. And resilient under autocracy. On the public TV, calling us traitors, liars, uh, foreign mercenaries. I'm Timothy Large from the International Press Institute in Vienna, and this is the IJ for EU podcast. Regular listeners will know that this podcast takes a behind-the-scenes look at investigations supported by the Investigative Journalism for Europe Fund, or IJ for EU for short. It's a fund designed to encourage cross-border watchdog journalism as a public good. I have the privilege of managing the IJ for EU program for the International Press Institute, in partnership with the European Journalism Center and the European Center for Press and Media Freedom. Today, on World Press Freedom Day, we're going to zoom out a bit and speak to European investigative journalists from countries where being resilient is a matter of survival, not least Russia and Ukraine. We'll also swing through Hungary and Serbia, where increasingly autocratic leaders have waged war on independent media, and we'll take you to the heart of Transylvania in central Romania. So buckle up and let's get started. My first guest is the award-winning Russian investigative journalist behind a remarkable news site known as Important Stories, or iStories for short. My name is Roman Arina. I'm uh, the editor of the investigative media outlet iStories. I wanted to say Russian investigative media outlet, but we are not based anymore in Russia. But of course, we write about Russia, Ukraine, and what's going on during the war right now. Thanks for taking part in the show, Roman. No doubt we'll get to the war in a minute, but it strikes me that if the story of media freedom in Russia is one of deterioration to the point of extinction, you're pretty well placed to tell that story through your own experiences. Let's take things chronologically. You started your career in 2006, I believe, at Novaya Gazeta, an independent newspaper whose editor, Dmitry Muratov, was a co-winner of last year's Nobel Peace Prize. Tell us, what was it like to be an investigative reporter in Russia back in those days? It was a completely different world and a completely different media environment. So by that time, what I'm, I came to Nova Gazeta on my first grade, my first course in university. And in 2006, there was a long list of media that you could choose where you could work. 
a lot of a lot of interesting uh, new and, and traditional media outlets and the majority of them were independent i would even say that some of the media that is considered to be a state control and media that you should not read but in 2006 was an okay media so you had a big big number of media outlets today nothing is left in russia we recently calculated that uh, when the war started uh, kremlin blocked about 40 media outlets. Some of them were blocked, others were shut down, others were proclaimed undesirable, for instance, as iStories. So we're mm, the second media that was proclaimed undesirable in Russia. So during 15 years, Kremlin has completely destroyed the media market. Of course, in 2006, I mean, I said that there were a lot of media outlets. It, it's, it was still kind of dangerous to do investigations in Russia wasn't the best place for uh, journalists because uh, I remember that when I joined Nova Gazeta, Anna Politkovska was still alive and I was shocked by the news when she was shut down in the elevator in the house where she lived. That was probably the time when I decided, because by that time I was working in the sports section and when I heard the news, that was probably the first time when I thought that maybe uh, writing about sports is not the best decision in a country where journalists are being killed for telling the truth. And I was, I started thinking about moving to the investigative section, which I did in two years. And over the next few years, you worked on collaborative projects with OCCRP, the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, and ICIJ, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. Yeah, I joined the uh, OCCRP and ICIJ. I started working with them in 2009 or 10, if I'm not mistaken. And since the early beginning, I was shocked by all the opportunities that cross-border uh, collaborative work, you know, gives to you. I remember that the very first story that we cooperated with OCCRP was the Magnitsky case. And just a quick reminder, Sergei Magnitsky, was a Russian lawyer who died in the Russian prison for actually investigating one of the biggest thefts in the Russian history of 230 million US dollars. And he was arrested and later tortured in the Russian prison. So I remember that we were publishing numerous stories in Russia, but we didn't know who were the beneficiaries of the crime because of course, in any international crime, in any big theft, there are many countries involved. And we saw that the money was going from Russia to Latvia, to Estonia, to Moldova, then to Cyprus, to numerous, numerous countries. There were uh, dozens of thousands of transactions all over the world. And we thought that, okay, we don't have resources. We don't know how to follow the money in foreign countries. But then I started talking and cooperating with my colleagues from OCCRP and we did an impossible thing. We got the data about the money flows of this crime in European and other countries. We published a number of stories that led to numerous criminal cases all over the world. And they even led to a civil forfeiture case in the US, which led to a huge fine for one of the beneficiaries of this crime. So this is like the result of cross-border uh, collaboration. It, it not only brings impact to your stories, but it also brings you a lot of connections in different countries. It gives you this uh, feeling of the brotherhood that, you know, people in other countries will help you, your colleagues in other countries will help you if you need anything, and you will help them if they need anything. A sense of solidarity. Exactly. You did a lot of great work in that time. You were a member of the Panama Papers team that won the Pulitzer Prize in 2017. You worked on the Paradise Papers. But let's fast forward to 2020, when you founded Important Stories, iStories, 
which I would describe as an extremely ambitious investigative news outlet. What on earth were you thinking? Oh my God, I still ask myself this question every day. Look, in 2018, I went to Stanford where I got a Jonas Knight Fellowship. And my idea was to go back to the investigative section of Nova Gazeta. By that time, I was the head of the investigative department of Nova Gazeta. And I was actually pretty happy about my job because despite being an editor, my job was mainly finding stories, writing stories, publishing stories. So my dream was to go to Stanford, learn coding, and then go back and become even more efficient. But then, you know, the spirit of the Silicon Valley, this entrepreneurial spirit, you know, you kind of feel it. And by the end of the fellowship, I asked myself, what is the ideal media that, that I want to see in Russia? And the ideal media that I'd love to go and work. And I realized that this ideal media doesn't exist. And I decided that maybe this is the only time for me to start this ideal media because I had a great time at Stanford. I had a lot, lots of connections. I thought that I would find money to start this new media outlet, which then happened. And today it's been two years since we, we started and we have a great team and we published a lot of really important stories in my opinion. And that makes me happy because I think that without our stories, these important stories and investigations wouldn't be published anywhere. Of course, you had to set it up in Latvia. It was impossible to create such a platform in Russia by then. Yeah, because it was the time when Russian authorities started bringing one criminal case after another, not only journalists, but also people from Navalny team. And we saw what they did with their funds to fight corruption. They just blocked their banking accounts. And while their banking accounts were blocked, they made a couple of transactions in order to prove that kind of proof, in order to fake and to make this kind of fake proof that they were getting money from abroad and proclaim them as foreign agents. And we, of course, realized that if we start our company in Russia, then our accounts will be blocked, then they can do whatever they want and, I don't know, even accuse us of being financed by terrorists. So we decided to set up the non-for-profit company in Latvia for security reasons, but we have to actually liquidate it right now because we were proclaimed as an undesirable organization. And managing and working for an undesirable organization is a crime in Russia. And I mean, still, we didn't stop our operations. We're just shutting down the company and we continue publishing the stories. But it's probably important to sublime that every mighty porter risks his freedom for just being part of the team. It's, it's a crime to, to be a journalist right now in Russia, and they can be sentenced to from four to 15 years of prison for various crimes. One of them is actually calling this war a war. Yes, it's a special operation, not a war or an invasion. That, of course, had a chilling effect on media freedom. In March, Novaya Gazeta, one of the last independent news outlets in Russia, suspended operations. And other organizations like yours have had to publish from abroad. Do you expect ever to be able to return to Russia? First of all, I couldn't imagine that I would be writing stories about Russia and not living in Russia because I, I always thought that it's impossible to write about uh, a country where you don't live because you lose the connection with people. You don't feel this nerve of the country, but we had no choice. And of course, if there will be, if there's a chance, I mean, we, but we understand that the only chance to go back is when, when Putin dies and when in general, the situation changes in Russia, which unfortunately uh, will not happen that soon. But of course, being a Russian speaking media for, for the Russian speaking, for a Russian speaking audience, 
we are constantly thinking about the way back. But of course, I don't. I will not let my people go back knowing that they can be sentenced right after crossing the border. On February 24th, Russia invaded Ukraine. Overnight, everything changed. Changed utterly. What kind of impact did the invasion have on you and your work? Huge, yeah. We had to change completely the media. We had to change completely our lives. When the war started and we were proclaimed undesirable, we had to relocate. Part of the team that wanted to continue to work for us, part of the team left, but the majority stayed. And, um, well, first of all, you just gotta imagine when we were proclaimed undesirable, we had two options, either to shut down, three options actually, to shut down to, the second option was to shut down and then uh, reappear and rename ourselves. And the third option to keep on working and publishing stories. And uh, we decided to choose the third option, but which is, which was not an easy decision because for instance, being undesirable means that people can't repost you. So we as journalists had to come to our audience and tell them, look, don't repost us. Can you imagine a reporter somewhere in the world who tells his audience, please don't repost us, please don't spread our news and do our information. So we told our audience, please subscribe, please read us, please think, but don't repost. So of course, I mean, this is difficult. The second thing is that you got to understand all the team had to leave Russia. They had to leave their parents. They had to leave their homes. They are staying now in Europe without, uh, any working permits without their cards are not working because of sanctions. And they are like Germans running from Hitler in 39. And of course they're not welcome in other parts of the world as well, because they have Russian citizenship and simultaneously with all these problems, they have to publish stories every day. So before the start of the war, we were publishing like once a week because we were, we considered ourselves as, as an investigative, but today we're publishing every day because we realized that nobody's interested in financial investigations in our investigations about corruption. So we completely changed the media. And despite all these difficulties in private lives of every reporter who had to leave his or her country under the risk of being sentenced, running from criminal cases, we still publish stories every day. And of course they're completely different. So we mainly focus these days on humanitarian stories about what's going on in Ukraine, about the death of civilians, about Russian, about the war crimes committed by the Russian army. We are talking to Ukrainians, we're talking to numerous sources in, in the Russian agencies. So yeah, I mean, it has completely changed our lives. You mentioned the difficulties facing independent Russian journalists in exile, credit cards not working and no work permits, not being welcome and so on. How can newsrooms, organizations, governments better support Russian journalists who have had to flee? Is there anything the world could be doing more of? Yeah, I think then it needs to be kind of called to European politicians and letting them know that Russian civil society and journalists, uh, I mean, I do understand that refugees are more important these days because these people are running from war, no doubt. But simultaneously, I want the European community not to forget that, as I said, Russian civil society and journalists are like Germans running from Hitler in 39. And they're not only running, but they're actually continuing their fight. Because, you know, Russia will, will probably exist and people of Russia will probably exist. And they're, then 
we need to have people who will who will actually tell them the truth about what was going on in Ukraine. Even if people these days don't listen to us in Russia, or don't I mean? But they do listen. That's that's the thing because we we see how the audience is growing not only of our stories but of other independent media as well. So we get more and more subscribers because people are starting to realize that uh, the state is lying to them. So one practical thing is that there probably needs to be a solution for, needs to be a solution to give humanitarian visas to Russian civil society and journalists who had to leave their country. The solution that was made for Ukrainian refugees, for instance, now they can get a humanitarian visa and stay for a year or even more in different European countries. And of course, we can't, we can't get these visas. We can get national visas of some of the countries, but they're just for one year. And that means that in a year we'll have to go back to Russia to what? To go to jail? That's a dire prospect. Meanwhile, you still must have security issues on your mind. As an investigative journalist, I imagine you've had to put in place all sorts of security protocols over the years for you and for your staff. With the war, I imagine security has become even more important. Yeah, every independent journalist these days who calls this war a war and who criticizes the Russian state and who writes the truth about uh, the war crimes committed by the Russian army is the enemy of the state. We're getting threats every day. If I open my uh, phone now and look at my messages, there will be lots of threats. I'm I'm receiving like dozens of calls every day from unknown numbers who want to tell me that I need to die. And uh, I'm not the only one, you know, there are many journalists receiving the same kind of things. Of course, we treat it seriously because we know about Russian secrets operations abroad, I mean, like Skripal case or Litvinenko case or others. The main rule about security is don't talk a lot about security. We have some protocols that we try to follow. Of course, we pay uh, attention to digital security, to encrypt our emails, we use encrypted messengers, and we do many other things. We also don't disclose the location where we are based. We try to, in general, be careful in our day-to-day life. On a psychological level, how do you cope with the onslaught of threats and intimidation and vile messages? How do you do this day after day? I mean, that is not easy, but this is something we're used to. I, as manager, as editor-in-chief, I try to organize some events that uh, might help the team to better cope with stress and, and threats and all the bad things that are going on. Some of them are successful and I see that people love them and they feel better afterwards. But in general, we, I constantly say that yeah, I mean, we're in a difficult situation, but on the other hand, you know, people in Ukraine, in Mariupol, in Kharkiv, in Izum, and many other cities, they feel worse. So we don't complain. Roman Annen, Editor-in-Chief of iStories, thank you for your time and best wishes to you and your colleagues. You're listening to a special edition of the IJ for EU podcast. My next guest is an investigative journalist who, until earlier this year, was up to his neck in a cross-border project supported by our IJ for EU fund. It was a six-country investigation looking at the illicit financing of Hezbollah in Lebanon. But that work came screeching to a halt when Russian forces attacked his hometown of Mykolaiv in southern Ukraine. My name is Oleg Adalov. I'm Ukrainian investigative reporter. I live in Mykolaiv and work for... Uh, Center for Reporters. Thanks for taking the time to join the show, Oleg. I know the situation in Mykolaiv remains tense, and many, yourself included, 
are still in survival mode. The city has suffered prolonged shelling. The water supply is cut off. People are having to collect water from rivers and springs. Your normal life as an investigative reporter must seem like another lifetime. Before we get to the situation on the ground today, give us a glimpse of what that former life was like. Yes, we did some mitigative reporter on daily basis. So we have NGO, non-government organization. And so we are part of the Global Investigative Journalist Network. So we usually cover stories about local corruption, some misuse of power. Also, we took part in the big cross-border investigative stories. We cooperated with the OCCRP, ICIJ. Uh, that, of course, is the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project and the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. So it sounds like cross-border collaboration was Par for the course. Uh, yes, sure. There's a lot of help from the foreign journalists from other countries, from Romania, United Kingdom, France, Syria, Estonia. It's like a normal normal agenda for us to speak with the foreign journalists for, from other countries, especially when we produce some stories, some joint, we, if you, we are part of the, some joint team with them. And then, on February 24th, your world was turned upside down. Putin chose this war, and now he and his country will bear the consequences. The Russian President Vladimir Putin is calling this a, quote, special military operation to protect Donbass. It is clearly bigger than that. The artillery barrage began at dawn and fierce fighting around the strategic Black Sea city of Mykolaiv has been continuing throughout the day. Were you taken by surprise? Did you think Russia would actually invade? We, we were taken by surprise. Nobody expected this. Nobody expected this. It was completely a surprise. A terrible surprise. Could you talk us through the first hours and days when you realized that the impossible had happened, that Russia was invading, that Russian forces were shelling Nikolaev, that they were trying to encircle the city? Uh, yes, so my experience was, uh, I live in, as you know, there's some part of the city on outskirts, which is called Kubakina. It's uh, some, some distant place from the city. It's on outskirts and it has some local military airdrome. So first, uh, when I heard about the war and when I, uh, I wake up in the in the night at the uh, 12th of February from the blow. So my door was opened by the air hit wave and it was the missile which uh, targeted our airdrome. So it was there. That is how I, I heard about this war. And then we, I turned on my smartphone and saw that Putin announced this special operation on Ukraine. So that was my first experience of the war. So yeah, two weeks, we are, we are completely shocked. And so we, we, we didn't produce any news and just, we just expected the invasion. And as you said, they tried to encircle our city, but our forces pushed them back. Uh, it was hard time, 
and we every day checked news about what officials uh, say, how far the Russian is from our city, what they do, what they plan. But fortunately, we managed to spread them back. During the shelling, were you able to find shelter or did you stay at home? We usually stayed at home because our city is not prepared for the war. We have not good shelters. There are just two or one in the city. Not many uh, shelters are organized for the shelter. I mean, not just your usual basement. So it was a topic of our small investigation even before the war when the rumors started spreading about the war. So we researched this topic and found that just a few of the shelters, which local government, like the shelters, they are not used for this. So many people just just stayed home. Did many flee the city? Uh, yeah, many people left. Uh, government said that uh, up to half of the people left, uh, probably one third or, or, or one half. Did you consider leaving yourself? Oh, yeah, I considered, but we stayed here. We, we have work to do. So sometimes I work as a fixer, help other journalists, foreign journalists to, or like a, a local producer to help other journalists to make stories about our city, about our region. So the work continues. But presumably you find yourself more of a war reporter than an investigative reporter these days. Yes, you are right. Uh, we have no... We stop doing our investigative reporter. Yeah, we usually work as uh, war, war journalists. But uh, I think it can be in the future when we win. I hope we will win. Or I'm sure we will win, and then we can show the world how what the Russians did with our people, what they damaged, what they, how many agreements. Uh, I mean, what they did, we, we can show it because they just uh, broke every law or every they use, for example. This um, cluster bombs, which is prohibited, so they use it against civilians, and so uh, there is. Uh, we we just uh, getting data, getting data, and of course we have news covering about what is happening now in our region, in Ukraine, in in southern Ukraine, Odessa, Mykolaiv. So we continue to work, and we we tell we we tell the stories about local people, what they do, what they expect how they suffer. Yeah, we do it. You mentioned working with journalists from other countries. How have you found working with reporters who have, in a sense, parachuted in to cover this war? Oh, uh, yes, uh, yes. There is, uh, most journalists uh, I work with, they are uh, very recent. Uh, I mean, respectful. I mean, they try to obey the rules. So, war time in our region, not to shoot the militaries, not to go the places you cannot go. But sometimes, uh, yes, some journalists just uh, do everything to make their stories interesting and uh, sensational. Of course, there is such problems when they uh, we have different tasks. For local journalists like me, the, we are we're very, we're very concerned about safety, about, about our 
soldier about our people. So we know we we live here. We are we are cannot provide information which will harm our our people. But journalists who came from abroad or other places, they just have some trip, and so they are not concerned about this. But consequences of their reports. So yeah, sometimes yeah we have different views on this on the same topic. They can just go home, but you have to keep living there. Yeah. yeah. How can newsrooms and organizations from abroad do a better job? How can they help you? What do you and your colleagues need? Yeah, sometimes, uh, sometimes, as you know, when we cooperate with other journalists in Ukraine, so we have no contracts, we have no agreements. We just, we just, uh, nobody to each other. So I think uh, first thing uh, that a local producer fixer can be part of the team sometimes. So I think it's. It's very cool. And then I think it will be useful if there will be some training, some camps where local journalists like me and others will be be taught how to work in such circumstances, how to do their job, our job. So I think it will be useful. Some training program, because, um, you know, in Ukraine, we don't know what status we have because we all people, we just ordinary people. So journalists uh, has the same rights in wartime as just local people, so rare people. And this concerns and safety place. So for, as you know, Mykolaiv is not a very safe place, but it is a more safe. But foreign journalists came from Odessa to Mykolaiv and they came back. So they are right, but we stay, stay here all the time. So I think if we can sometimes move across Ukraine from one place to the other, I think it will be more useful for us. So, I mean, for our minds, for, you know, we have martial law. Of course, men under the age of 60 can't leave. We cannot leave, but... And uh, this one reason or another, we are just part of the whole country. So I have a lot of friends, a lot of, um, uh, even relatives in the army. So we just one part, one, one, one unit. I mean, mm. so Ukrainian, uh, we, we, so Ukrainians are really united in this world. On World Press Freedom Day. What is your message for anyone listening? I just want message uh, support Ukrainian people in Ukraine and stay with us. Oleg Oganov, editor of the Center for Investigative Reporting in Mykolaiv, stay safe and well. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. And before I introduce my next guest, a gentle plea to journalists from around the world who might be headed to Ukraine. Please try to give the local journalists you work with the duty of care and respect they deserve. You may have security staff and security equipment, hostile environment training, insurance, and a permanent contract to go home to, but don't assume your fixer or producer or colleague in the field has the same. Put yourself in their shoes and act accordingly. From Ukraine, 
to the center of the ethnic Hungarian community in Romania, Transylvania. Hello, my name is Melinda Piertis. I'm editor-in-chief at Transtelex.ro, minority media outlet for the ethnic Hungarian minority of Romania. We are based in Cluj-Napoca in Transylvania. Actually, it's the capital of Transylvania. And we are trying to reach as many Hungarians as possible, not just from Transylvania, but also from Hungary. Great to have you on the show, Melinda. Now, let me ask you about how Transtelex came into being. In keeping with our theme on World Press Freedom Day, it's a story of cross-border collaboration and resilience. Our story began 23 years ago. In 1999, Transindex was uh, launched and uh, we operated mainly from funds coming from the political representation of the ethnic Hungarian minority in Romania, the UDMR, the Democratic Alliance of Hungarians in Romania. But about a decade ago, we were uh, starting to have uh, troubles in a sense that uh, politically we started to feel a pressure. And this was the time when the UDMR elected a new president. Previously, the president of uh, Udemere was convinced that the ethnic Hungarian minority needs this voice of the Transindex, and he made sure that the financing is, is okay. We have money to operate. But then, when on the new president, Munor, was elected, Fidesz started to approach Udemere. Fidesz, of course, is the ruling party in neighboring Hungary, led by populist Prime Minister Viktor Orban. Yes. And after this, this time, we started to feel political pressure. And last year, the funds started not to come. Uh, first, they, the funds were delayed. And uh, then we heard that uh, they might even uh, cease. And how is it that Fidesz was able to influenced your funding in Romania? Fidesz started to buy the ethnic Hungarian media in Transylvania. And first, the critical voices started to disappear. Then they stopped altogether. And the Transindex continued to fulfill the work of the media, to do real journalistic work. And this started to feel that this can maybe be problematic in the relationship with Fidesz. So it's the long arm of Viktor Orban reaching into Romania, in a sense. You Ah, can say that, yes. And what happened next? In in the summer of last year, there were never direct messages. Nobody said anything about stopping the, the fundings. But we started to feel that we will have a problem. And the Transindex started a crowdfunding campaign to ensure that the operation continues. But unfortunately, the, the funds gathered were not enough to sustain um, the operation. So we had to look for a new way. And this is where Telex comes into the picture. Telex, of course, is an independent media outlet in Hungary. And at this point, our listeners might benefit from a quick aside, because the story of Telex in Hungary 
is in many ways a mirror image of the story of trans in Romania. Flashback to July 2020, when the editor-in-chief of Index, which was the largest and most influential independent news website in Hungary, was fired. This happened after he went public over concerns about political meddling in the newspaper following a change of ownership. Next, Index's entire editorial board and around 80 other journalists resigned in protest. This led to thousands of Hungarians demonstrating in the streets for press freedom, and with the help of donations from the public, the journalists went on to establish telex.hu. And when they heard that we faced a similar situation, they uh, immediately offered their help. And how did they help? I must mention here News Spectrum. Another brief side note, News Spectrum is an IPI-led program that is run in parallel to IJ4EU. It seeks to encourage working partnerships between journalists and news outlets working in minority languages and their majority language counterparts. Through your uh, brand, a couple of uh, journalists from Transindex cooperated with journalists from Telex in a cross-border, did a series of cross-border stories. And the two editorial rooms started to get to know each other. And this is how Telex thought about helping out Transindex, because they uh, absolutely knew about the situation this uh, smaller editorial room was facing. And first, they organized a crowdfunding uh, event. So Telex founded the company here in Romania, and the sources of the finances gathered in both Hungary and in Transylvania are coming to support this project. And we already have about 2,000 persons who contributed to help start this project. So it, it looks uh, pretty stable at the moment. Did readers of Trans Index remain loyal to the new Trans Telex? Actually, this is a challenge because we thought that everybody would just get it and, and start reading the new outlet, but this never happened. And we struggle to make uh, the former audience of Trans Index know about our uh, project. But I think we have a long way to go. We have um, about half of the audience we used to have at Transindex. What was your former audience at Transindex? About uh, 20,000 a day. You have to know that the minority in Transylvania, the Hungarian minority, is about 1.2 million. So there's potential for big growth. I hope we can grow this. In April, we had Hungarian elections, in which Prime Minister Viktor Orban won yet again, and his ruling Fidesz party secured yet another supermajority, further entrenching his brand of illiberal democracy. Can you tell us how the Hungarian election played out in Transylvania? In Transylvania, there's an option of the mail-in ballot voting, and some of the ethnic Hungarians voted this way, and we covered the mailing ballot vote. We exchanged news with the Telex articles about the elections. We sent them our material. 
they gave us their materials. So I think we covered the elections quite well. And uh, it, it was nice for them, too, that they had uh, news from Transylvania directly from journalists covering these issues here. So that's a juicy example of cross-border collaboration. And what are some of the pressing issues for the ethnic Hungarian community in Transylvania? What's on people's minds? What do they worry about? Actually, it's not very different. Uh, Romanians also worry about the same things, about money, about their finances, about the war now in Ukraine, across the border. So I think we share a lot of similar interests with Romanian community. But as a news outlet, we try to write stories about topics that are not very much present. For example, we recently had a reportage about suicides in Sacklerland. It's a part of uh, Transylvania where most uh, Hungarians live. And uh, this turned out to be two or three times higher than the, the average of Romanian. So this was an interesting topic. And uh, we try to write about topics that are considered taboo. This is one example, such a topic. Any other examples of taboo subjects that spring to mind? Yes, for example, alcoholism. Alcoholism. Yes, this is a, a huge problem also affecting ethnic Hungarians. So because of this, a lot of larger problems emerge from this issue, like domestic violence and so on, poverty even. We try to do coverage that is, is somehow permanent about these topics. We always uh, look for topics that um, are not much discussed in other media outlets, and maybe they are even relevant for the Hungarian audience in Hungary. Just going back to the elections for a minute, would you say the majority of ethnic Hungarian voters in Transylvania are pro fides Yes, we know exactly that 96% uh, of voters voted for Fidesz. But there's another issue that is less discussed, that many ethnic Hungarians don't even vote. They don't register and then they don't uh, participate at the vote. We don't know. Actually, maybe it can be said that ethnic Hungarians vote for Fidesz or sympathize with Fidesz. But we... Uh, can't know. For it's not a certainty. Of those who do vote, why do you think they voted so overwhelmingly for Fidesz? Fidesz offered something that ethnic Hungarians in Romania lack, a sense of belonging. Sense of belonging to a nation. The Romanian nation failed to uh, integrate the Hungarian community. I think this is an important issue for why Fidesz is so popular among the voters. Given this overwhelmingly pro-Fidesz sentiment, how is it for you working as an independent media outlet that tries to be objective? Do you suffer any blowback? Yeah. When the staff of uh, Transindex resigned, it was interesting that other ethnic Hungarian outlets were, I don't know, it was like they organized, sorry, I don't... Uh, remember the word. Yes, but they were very negative toward us. On February the 15th, staff resigned. 
And the response from the other ethnic Hungarian outlets was interesting because they were very negative towards us. They tried to portray us like we were some kind of a fraud, that we did this, that there was nothing to see here, everything was in order, and we are, that is just a figment of our imagination that uh, we have had uh, political pressure. And how did that make you feel? It, it was unexpected, actually. It did not feel very good. <laughs> Everybody was uh, feeling down because of this. We actually thought that we will receive more support, and this never happened. This is still something that I think the editorial staff still tries to get over. It must have been very disappointing. Yes, it was. It was. Yeah. But... Okay, now we started this new project and we we look forward. How do you see the future now? What would you like to happen? We would like to increase our audience. I hope we can double the audience in, I don't know, maybe this year, but latest next year. And we just want to do our, we would write independently, free of political pressure. And just be journalists and and have the freedom to write about anything we consider fit. And presumably you'll continue to collaborate in a big way with Telex in Hungary. Telex will be a part of our story. We collaborate. We we never cease to collaborate. We run on the same uh, platform. Even they did our design. So they helped in more than just financing. And as I said, Telex, the, um, the chief financial officer of uh, Telex, is uh, the um, owner of our company. So it's a close, very close collaboration, which will continue for many years. It's, it's our joint project. Well, we wish you all the best. Melinda Kertetz, editor-in-chief of TransTelex in Romania, thanks for your time. Thank you. You're listening to a special edition of the IJ for EU podcast, marking World Press Freedom Day. We have just enough time for one more guest, this time from the Balkan Investigative Reporting Network, or BERN. I'm Dragan Obradovic. Um, I'm director of uh, Balkan Investigative Reporting Network in Serbia, local branch of the regional network, but I'm also running um, a regional program called Reporting Democracy that covers Central and Eastern Europe. And the part of that program is uh, the Fellowship for Journalistic Excellence, one of the pins, I think, most stream programs for support of journalists. Now, full disclosure, Dragana and I are former colleagues. I spent several happy years as editor of the Fellowship for Journalistic Excellence, which allows journalists to carry out in-depth, long-form reporting often with a cross-border element. It's open to journalists across the Balkans and the so-called Visegrad states, that's Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, and Slovakia. I was also the founding editor of Reporting Democracy, uh, which Dragana mentioned. It's a cross-border investigative platform that we'll no doubt talk about in a minute. And finally, Dragana is part of a cross-border team supported by the IJ for EU Fund. They're working on a dynamite data story involving Belarus and Poland, 
It'll be published this week, so I won't say any more, but do stay tuned for that. Dragana, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. So nice to stay Thank in touch you, Tim. Thank you as well. It was a pleasure from my side also. Now, I can say for a fact, because I know you, that cross-border collaboration is in your DNA. And it's in the DNA of your colleagues. Why is that? Bill's devotion to the cross-border journalism comes from the very nature of our network. Basically, Bill started from the group of reporters that were covering war in the Hawkins in the 90s for the London-based um, Institute for War and Peace Reporting. And at the time when the Institute was um, closing their operations in the Balkans, they decided to stay together and basically to continue working together on the region that was going through very difficult transitional post-war periods. So I would say that like regional perspective and regional reporting is at the very heart of what BIRN is and then how it developed. Like looking at that time, like at the end of 90s, basically, and then the war period that was behind the region, of course, because of many difficulties and hostilities and like high level of nationalism on all the sides. It wasn't easy for these journalists to come together and work on the regional product. But then on the other hand, I think it was their strength in a way, because it was the only similar operation. And that is the heritage that today as well, that we see our regional operation, our regional structure as our biggest, I would say, advantage. And we lean quite a lot on each other and on like colleagues from different offices, not only when they are reporting topics, and we can talk about that because there are many regional topics that are so interesting that we are actually reporting, but also on sharing knowledge, sharing strategies, and especially strategies for how to build that resilience or how to react in the situation when somebody is under attack. Precisely, I can speak about the situation that we in Serbia had in 2015. At that time, Prime Minister and today's president, Alexander Gucic, started with his first big campaign against the independent media. And in Serbia was in the center of that campaign after the series of investigative articles that we published on public TV, calling us traitors, liars, foreign mercenaries paid by the EU to overthrow his government, and so on and so forth. Of course, like all the tabloids picked up that and they were in days in a row on the front pages of the treatments papers. And we were thinking like how to respond to these claims because mm. as investigative journalists, you know, it's sometimes like silly to go into these debates and claiming like the chairing of the liar and proving to those that don't want to hear like all the effects based on which you have published your stories. So we opted for a bit different strategy and that was to basically organize big counter campaign internationally for the protection of Serbia. And in that sense, our regional offices and, and the international nature of our operation played like a huge role that our message was very well heard out of Serbia as well. It came also to the European Parliament at this debate and we somehow managed to basically get in position when we cannot be so easily targeted by the government. Of course, that they are doing that still. I mean, through the tabloids, through, of course, like this fake analysts, and it is happening to other investigative journalists in Serbia as well. But when it comes to people, particularly, like that was probably the last time that such a huge organized campaign was started mm. against one of our offices. 
So the international recognition gave you some measure of protection, a, a level of insulation. Of course, in early April, we had two elections that were especially significant for you, one in Serbia and one across the border in Hungary. In both cases, we saw the further entrenching of what many would describe as autocratic regimes. In Serbia, President Alexander Vucic won another five years. In Hungary, as we've said, Prime Minister Viktor Orban and his Fidesz party got another supermajority. How did you feel watching those results come in? It must have been a rather depressing, if not surprising, experience. Honestly, it wasn't surprising because there's somebody who is following news, like it's just so clear, it is going to happen, especially after, of course, the start of the war in Ukraine, as of course that event, unfortunately, it's all of course, like uh, brought a number of news effects, you know, throughout the region, one of them being like entrenching, further entrenching of uh, autocratic uh, regimes. Serbia, I guess, in Hungary was pretty much safe the same dynamic because, of course, they go to choose that to strengthen that position of a leader who is bringing stability and protecting national interests in these very unstable times. You mentioned the war in Ukraine. How are Serbian media covering the war, given that pro-Russian sentiment runs high among the public? And for a long time, President Vucic has been doing a delicate balancing act, showing one face to the West with aspirations to join the EU and normalize relations over Kosovo and so on, and quite another to Russia, which of course has many ties to Serbia and investments and so on. Speaking about pro-governance media, there's, I would say, like, vast majority of them are having a position of relativization. So it's not that they are like openly defending Russia's position, but there is a lot of politicization, like explanations why that was in geopolitical terms was necessary to move from their side and the context was reaction to basically all a chain of you know, developments over the years and, and, and so on. So I would say that is definitely the most dominant narrative. And then also you have very loud or a group of media, especially tabloid media, that are on openly very strong position. And then like minority of media, most of them I would say have a liberation that are openly condemning the war. But the most dominant narrative and the one that is drawn by the public TV, for example, is you know this Hiding behind the geopolitical circumstances, Cold War, expansion of NATO, and then the cultural war that they see in the background of, of the current war in Ukraine, like mm. the cultural war between the East and the West. Let me ask you a personal question. For years, you and your colleagues have been accused of being all manner of terrible things foreign agents, spies, traitors, enemies of the people. Yet during this time, you've simply been doing the work of independent, fact-based watchdog journalism, holding power to account, exposing corruption, exposing organized crime. What you're doing is essentially a public good. Yet so many members of the public don't see it that way. How do you keep going when you're constantly and unfairly portrayed as the villain? Depends on, on perspective. Yeah, like who is following you? Villain. So I don't get any reason. Like 
you take pride in, in the. <laughs> you're doing something wrong if you're not called the police. <laughs> but, but in circumstances like this, yeah, like I think that we are on the right side of you know, history and public interest. So, in that respect, like I'm not questioning um, myself or the work that my colleagues are doing. The problem is follow the general public. What is the, the perception of the general public to the world that we are? And how deeply, I would say, divided society we have in Serbia as a result of such a toxic, you know, politics and propaganda that we are subjected on a daily level. So there are many people that actually think that we are working for foreign interests, that like people are, you know, foreign governments are giving us money in suitcases for, I don't know, like smearing our own government I and mean, so on. So that's what I see. I didn't say depressing, but challenging. And we are working quite a lot on changing that. Like the strategy that we are trying to test is to be as present as possible. So we are traveling a lot. We are meeting people. We are participating in all you know, debates and going whenever wherever we are invited. Also, uh, we're going throughout the Serbia to small places to talk to people, uh, to cover some of the stories that they have as a problem. It's not only high level political corruption. And then I have to say that over the years, perspective started to change. I think also it started to change because all these, like the system of, of lies is crumbling. People are seeing that they are not living as good as they are told. Yeah, and, and 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 basically they started to a certain degree, you know, adopting what what they said. So there is a change in a way that more people are ready to listen and to go to debate. Yeah, so I see that as a positive thing. That's very optimistic. A nice note on which to bring the show to an end. But first, I must ask you because it was a question I used to get a lot when setting up reporting democracy: Why is a Balkan organization? expanding its coverage to Visegrad countries in Central and Eastern Europe. It fits very much to the topic of, of this podcast because the very reason uh, is that in the first, at some point there are so many regional stories that are not important. Yeah, like so mm-hmm. connections between the two regions, like political connections in the first place between our autocratic governments and then strongmen, but also businesses and hearings. And yet there was no Collaboration between journalists to, to follow these stories. Dragana Obradovic, thanks for your time today. And that brings us to the end of this special edition of the IJ for EU podcast on World Press Freedom Day. I'm Timothy Large, and it's been a pleasure. Stay tuned for our next show, and as always, keep holding power to account. Take care now. <laughs>